Devora Vale. I'm a life and wellness coach and the host of this podcast. Welcome to Accessing Your Best Self, a space meant for exploring the wisdom of Torah and its practical application for improving our character. I'm very excited about going through the Shona Estray with you. It's a little bit selfish because, of course, we all need chizuk uh, when it comes to davening. And of course, the more that we understand the prayers that we're saying and the words that we're saying, the more we're going to get out of it. It's a gorgeous day here in Toronto. I actually went for a flu shot early this morning. And then I went for a walk in Earl Bales Park, which, wow, just gorgeous. Makes me want to live in Clanton Park. <laughs> for all you Clanton Parkers. And uh, I was listening to a lot of uh, different things that everybody's been sending in about, unfortunately, the patira of Rabbi Jonathan Sachs. So as beautiful as it, a day as it is, it's also a very sad day for Kal Yisrael, because we've lost a real light, two lights actually, with the patira of Rav David Feinstein as well. And uh, of course, very difficult not to feel... Very, very sad about the loss of these two great lights of the Jewish people at a time when the world is going through so much turmoil and chaos, and we need our great people and their wisdom and their knowledge and their guidance more than ever before. The class is sponsored by the Adelsberg family, Renee Adelsberg, in memory of her dear, dear mother, Rachel Bastalman. And uh, she was known as Bubby Rose to her grandchildren. And uh, her husband, Chaim, if I can call him Chaim, Mr. Adelsberg, who I remember dearly, uh, used to call her Rachel. So Renee just wrote me a little bit about her mother, which I'll share with you. She was, like her, her, fa her father, a Holocaust survivor. And uh, my husband was just telling me, it's a lot of people have heard this before, but the Satmar Rav was once approached by his, one of his Hasidim. And he asked him, he, he said to him, what's going to be when you're no longer with us after 120 years? Who's going to give us brachas? And the Satmar Rav said, don't worry, all you need to do is go into any base medrash and find somebody with a number on their arms, on their arm, and they can give you a bracha. I once heard that, sh that uh, the, the language Hebrew is called Lashon HaKodesh, the holy tongue, but the language Yiddish is called Lashon HaKadoshim, the language of the holy ones, because of all the martyred Jews that unfortunately... This was the language that they spoke. So a little bit about Rivka, Rivkala. My mother, Olive Shalom, called me Rivkala. Renea is a twin. She is a twin sister who both lived in our community in Manhattan Beach. So my mother, Olive Shalom, called me Rivkala, and she called my twin sister, Evelyn Havala. My mom was born in Krakow, Poland and lived on, I hope I pronounced this right, Soroka Street, the street of the Ramashuo. She survived the Holocaust horrors by pretending she was deaf and lost her entire family. 
She met my father in Plajau concentration camp. No, the movie Schindler's List, everybody knows, has heard of that. Mute everybody. And uh, she actually met her husband, Chaim. She met him in the Plajau concentration camp when he was building her bed. They were separated, and after my father searched all over, he finally found her, and they were married in Germany and eventually came to Brooklyn. My mom, Oliva Shalom, was a very affectionate, loving mom and wife. She appreciated the small things in life and was a genuine person, preferred to be around people that were real and was not so interested in material things. She was always more comfortable with other survivors. She was highly intelligent and was always interested in world events. Well, Renee, you're in good company because I know a lot of the um, members of the Clanton Park Shul are children of Holocaust survivors. I've heard some of their stories about their own parents. And I know that they can certainly relate to the way that you grew up with all of the stories and horrors of what your parents went through. One of the, um, one of the uh, videos that was going around this morning in regards to Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, which I was so taken by, was when he was asked the question, why do bad things happen to good people? And for those of you who listened to that this morning or saw it, it was very profound and it was an answer that I, I hadn't really heard, or if I heard it, it's been a long time. But he said basically that God doesn't want us to know why bad things happen to good people. Because if we knew why, we might accept it. And God doesn't want us to accept it because he wants us to rail against the fact that bad happens to good people. And of course, we saw an example of this in this week's Parsha, this last week's Parsha Vayera, where Avram Avinu argues with God, how can you, how can you destroy Sodom? How can you destroy the righteous together with the wicked? What if there's 50 righteous? What if there's 45? What if there's 40? What if there's 10? A God of justice can't do such a thing. And this is what God wants us to do, right? The failing of Noah was that Noah never davened for the people who were going to be part of the Mabul. Noah didn't care enough about others. And Avram Avinu is our father, is our first avot, and what all of our Yiddishkeit is based on, because of this concern and care for other people, this attribute of chesed, which we're told that if a person doesn't possess this attribute, you should question their yichus, because it's part of the DNA of every Jew, to care deeply about other people, and to rail against evil, and rail against this idea of bad happening in a world that's supposed to be good. So this is a very profound response to 
My husband also came home from shul and the rabbi asked the same question as Shalashudas. Why do bad things happen to good people? And the Slonim Rav, who he quoted, said, it's not something that we can understand with our goof. In other words, with our material, finite, intellectual mind. We can only understand it with our ruchani, with our spirit, with our spirituality, with our soul. It is not part of the language or in the parameters of the physical for us to be able to have any kind of response to it. So our class today is the beginning of Shemona Esrei. And of course, I'm going to begin every class with a little bit about prayer in general and what prayer is and why we pray. And um, today we're going to begin with the source for prayer that comes from the Chumash Bereshit and of course is in, found in Parshish Bereshit. There's really two main reasons why we pray. Of course, we all know the first reason is the most evident, which is we pray to get what we want. So the source for this in the Torah is actually at the very beginning, right after Adam HaRishon, the first human being, is created. It says just before that, that um, all the trees of the field were not yet on the earth and all the herb of the field had not yet sprouted, even though it was the sixth day of the week. For Hashem God had not sent rain upon the earth and there was no man to work the soil. When Adam Arishon came into the world, he came into a bleak and dark world. There were no colors. There was no vegetation. There was nothing there to provide for him. And the Torah teaches us that when Adam saw this and he realized that his survival was dependent on growth, he was the first to pray. And There was no one to work the soil means there was no one to recognize the utility of rain until Adam came along. But when Adam was created, he recognized its important for, importance for the world. He prayed and rain fell, causing the trees and vegetation to spring forth. The idea is that before Adam prayed, everything was already there. Beneath the soil, all of the vegetation, all of the trees, everything that would come into being was already there just waiting for Adam to reveal it, to bring what was in potential into actualization. And this is the primary purpose of prayer or one of the main purposes of prayer. We bring what is in potential into actualization. Had, had Adam not prayed for rain, then the world, which was just waiting for the first human being to ask, would never have come into being. This demonstrates a basic article of faith. God provides what man needs, but it is up to man to pray and otherwise carry out all of his spiritual responsibilities. Again, to make what is latent come into 
fruition, to make that which is in potential come into actuality. You know, one of the basic questions that people ask always is, you know, why do we need to pray? God knows what we need. God knows everything. He knows what I want. He knows what I need. So why do I need to ask? Why do I need to pray? So the second reason is because God wants to create a relationship with us. And he created a system whereby he says, so to speak, of course, I know what you need. Of course, I know what's good for you and what you want. But I created, so to speak, laws of nature, of spiritual nature, that only when you ask me for it, can I deliver it. When you ask and I give to you, then we have a relationship. You know, in French, the word to pray is the word prier, which means to beg. Of course, in the first scenario, you can imagine Adam Harishon in a world where there was nothing, begging God to send rain for his very survival. On one level, we understand that we depend on God for our very survival. Every morning we wake up, we say, You gave me back my soul. You woke me up this morning. You give me the food that I eat that sustains me. We say brachas on our food for that reason, right? We say our 15 brachas in the morning for the eyes that see, for the legs that are able to take us where we need to go. Because we understand our utter dependence on God the way Adam Harishon understood it at the very beginning of creation when nothing existed. And it was only when he called down rain from heaven that this relationship began and he recognized that it's by us calling out that Hashem brings down what we need. By the way, just interesting, the word gashmiut, which means material, physical world, the shorish of that word is geshem, rain. Obviously, the rain is what brings down all of the gashmiut, all of the... So God wants us to be in relationship with him. That's the other part of this. Yes, God knows what we need, but he wants us to ask. And he created us lacking. He created us the chesronan, with the inability to be totally independent. And I've said in other classes that one of the greatest punishments that happened after the hate of the Eitz Hadas, when Adam and Chava ate from the tree, one of the worst punishments, or we say the worst punishment, was given to the snake to the Nachash, because the Nachash, who started the whole ball rolling, coming to Chava and tempting her, right? The Nachash originally walked on legs, we're told, was a very developed being, and his punishment was that his legs were cut off, and he would now slither along the ground, and he would find his food easily accessible, and everywhere he went, he would lick the dust of the earth, and that's where his food would be. Why was this considered the worst of all punishments? Because God was basically saying, you won't need anything from me. We will not have a relationship. Because you will not have to ask anything from me. Everything you need will be provided for. And that's a curse. God wants us to understand that we're lacking. Emotionally, spiritually, physically, sometimes we need 
And when we look to him and we ask him for the things that we need, we create relationships. Now, of course, there are relationships that are based only on needing, you know? It's like the teenager who only talks to, to, to her parents when she needs the car keys, right? And otherwise, all, you know, all week long is just one word answers whenever the parent wants to try to talk to them, you know? Or, you know, the kid who comes around every week when there's allowance time. But no parent wants a relationship with their child based only on neediness. So why else do we want a relationship with God? We want to develop a conversation with God. Rabbeinu Yonah says, prayer is not man speaking to God. Rather, it's the God inside man speaking to the God outside of man. We have that little piece, that little piece, that Selim Elohim within us, that neshama, which is a piece of God. And when we engage in conversation, it's like that God inside of us connecting to the God outside. And this is the source of the greatest pleasure that a person can experience in this world. If God is the source of all pleasures in this world, physical pleasures, and even more so spiritual pleasures, right? There's only so much physical pleasure the human body can handle. But spiritual pleasure is endless. You know, we can never get tired of nachas. You know, we can never eat too much nachas. You know, when we're at a, our, our grandson's bar mitzvah, or we're experiencing our own child's, uh, you know, success in something that they've been working at, or we see something beautiful happening between two people, maybe two people who didn't talk for years and making up. These spiritual pleasures, there's no end to them. We don't get like the physical body can only take so much. And this is the spiritual pleasure that we're talking about that's accessible through tefillah, through this conversation that we have with the divine. The same way our body needs food three times a day in order to be healthy and continue to thrive, so too our soul needs spiritual nourishment. And the food of the soul is connection to the divine. Because that soul, again, is a small piece of Hashem that each one of us possesses. I'm just going to read you something short from this book called, uh, Rabbi Menachem Nissel wrote this book, Rikshe Leib, which is actually uh, about women and tefillah. But in the beginning, he says, you know, he talks about this relationship with Hashem as being the ultimate good. But he asks the question, which theme is the dominant theme? In other words, is a relationship with Hashem the means to solve our many problems? Or is it that our many problems are a means to have a relationship with Hashem? The answer is astonishing, he says. Although it seems totally counterintuitive, all our problems are in fact nothing more than a means to have a relationship with Hashem. Every challenge, pain, and moment of suffering, from the anguish of Adam Arisham when he opened his eyes for the very first time, to the agony of the birth pains of the Messianic era, 
all exist so that man can connect to God. The act of prayer is not a solution to man's inadequacy. Rather, man's inadequacy is an opportunity for prayer. When life seems to be good, we, su- we see prayer as a chore, part of our daily ritual, which we squeeze in between brushing our teeth and breakfast. However, when life seems to be bad, we rush to our sitter to solve our problems. But in fact, all the events of life are just roads to prayer. When the road is smooth, Hashem is challenging us to acknowledge that we can't take anything for granted and we're totally dependent on him. And when the road is rocky, he gives us the opportunity for extra intensity in prayer to achieve an even higher level of closeness to him. We know that HaKadosh Baruch who desires the prayers of the great people. Three out of the four of our imahos were barren. They were unable to have children. Why would God do this? Doesn't he want the Jewish people to be multitudinous and grow and spread the message of Hashem Echad to the world? And of course, the Gemara, the Talmud tells us because Hashem desires the prayers of the righteous. And it's only when we're squeezed like an olive that the oil comes out, the purest oil comes out, the harder the pressure, the more pressure, the more pure the oil. And it's an opportunity that the great people take to find even greater closeness and greatness. And this is what we're meant to learn from them, to take our challenges and make them into opportunities for greater closeness to Hashem. Prayer is also a time for introspection. We say that the word tefillah very often is also used, also we use the word lehit palel to pray. And lehit palel is a reflexive verb. It's like lehit labesh, to dress yourself. So what does that mean that tefillah is reflexive? I thought we're praying to God. But the idea here is that lehit palel, the word pilel means to examine to judge. And so the heat palel is coming to teach us another very important part of prayer. And that is that when you're standing in front of God, you're supposed to be taking an accounting of yourself. Before the great people would start to daven, Shimona Esrei, they would prepare, we're told, for three hours before tefillah. And it would take them three hours to come back to this earth after tefillah. Because they literally were examining themselves going through hispotidus, self-introspection and saying to themselves, what am I asking for and why am I asking for this? What am I going to do with this if God will grant me what I want? Again, the heat palel is reflexive to judge oneself, to ask oneself, what is it that I need? What is it that I want you to give me, Hashem, so that I can be a better Evid Hashem? Will this take me away from that? Or will this bring me closer to that? Only Hashem knows that. Okay. So our class is about the Shemona Esri, and I just want to give everybody an understanding of the incredible importance of that prayer and why we're beginning with Shemona Esri. If you hardly have any time to daven in the morning, 
if you don't have any time to daven in the morning and you could sneak in five minutes or 10 minutes, you're supposed to begin with the Shemona Esrei because the Shemona Esrei, the Talmud teaches us, is Zut Filah. This is Tfilah. Everything else that leads up to the Shemona Esrei is like somebody who's climbing up the side of a mountain and when he gets to the top, he's reached his destination. He's reached the apex of where he wants to be. But all of that climb up is preparation to get him to the top. So too, all of the tefillos in our sitter that come before the Shemona Esrei are all preparation to coming to this incredible moment when we're standing, so to speak, mouth to mouth, directly in front of the Rabbono Shel Olam, the master of the universe, the creator of the world, and having a conversation. And his ears are wide open. It's pretty, it's pretty awesome when you think about it. If we really believe it, that we're really having this private rendezvous, so to speak, with the master of it all, Adon Olam, and we really feel that when we're standing at Shimon Esrei, wow, that's pretty awesome that the God of everything wants to engage in conversation with tiny little puny me. The fact that all of our prayers are leading up to the Shemona Esrei is also, um, in, is also um, metaphorically shown in the building of the Beit HaMikdash. The building of the Beit HaMikdash, the structure of our temple, is, corresponds to the morning davening. So when we begin our davening, it's like we're entering into the temple. When we say our 15 morning brachas, we're climbing the 15 steps leading into the Ezrat Nashim. When we say the next part, we're moving closer and closer into different areas. The korbanos were in that area of the, of the uh, temple where they used to offer sacrifices. Korbanot, lehakriv, to come closer, right? This was a method of coming closer to Hashem. And the apex of it all was entering the holiest place, the place where heaven and earth kiss. And that, of course, is the Kodesh HaKadoshim, the Holy of Holies, that only the Kohen Gadol was allowed to go into once a year on Yom Kippur. And if he had flaws or if he was found unworthy, we know that he died in there. And that's why every Kohen Gadol, before the Yom Kippur service, there was a rope attached to him. So that if, God forbid, he didn't make it through, we could pull him out. And that rope miraculously would turn from red to white when the Jewish people were told that our sins had been forgiven. But the idea, again, back to the Shemona Esrei, is when you are standing in Shemona Esrei, you are literally standing in the Kodesh HaKadoshim. And your tefillahs are going through the center of where the Keruvim, the two angels, the boy and the girl that are sitting on top of the luchot, right, of the tablets, 
your prayer, your Shemona Esrei, is going through that space, which is considered, again, the holiest place on earth, which is where heaven and earth connect, where the divine touches this world in the greatest concentration possible to the point that god forbid it could bring death to a human being who went in there and was not properly spiritually prepared and this is what we reenact every single time we dove in shmona esrei we can actually picture our words going First of all, they have to travel from New York or Toronto or wherever you are, right? And they have to travel. If you've ever seen that brilliant movie uh, that Aish made of all the kfittals in the world flying to the hotel from every direction of the world where Jews daven. It's an incredible little film that they show on the JWRP trip just before they take the women down to the hotel for the first time. They've all been given their first sitter for many of them. And it's an extremely emotional moment. And the idea, again, is that from all over the world, these prayers just rush to the place where the temple stood. And, of course, the Shemona Esrei is as if they're going right through that space where the Kruvim are in the Kodesh Kadoshim and where God dwells in the greatest concentration that is available to man on this earth. Now, when I was a kid, I don't know, I'm sure all of you have a story about the first time you prayed or the first time you found out about prayer. My earliest memory of prayer is in after school, Hebrew school, which was not fun to be at. I grew up in a smaller town. There were no day schools there. So we had to suffer with, after a full day of public school, we had to suffer with going to Hebrew school for about three hours in this dingy, you know, basement of the shul with teachers that were either from Europe or, and were teaching us this archaic language that we did not understand uh, at all, nor did we understand the English translation, which was full of thou arts and thines which certainly didn't make any sense. And I, as you can imagine, it was very hard to keep our attention. So what I learned as a child was that whoever davens Shimona Esri the fastest is the winner. Because what the rabbi would do to keep us entertained is he would have a stopwatch. And for the seven of us, you know, two girls and whatever, five boys that were in the class, the way that he would entice us to want to daven is that he'd put the stopwatch and we'd start Shimon Esther and he'd say, okay, whoever davens the fastest wins. So that was the race. Now, it was only years later that I realized that, uh, that actually the opposite is true, that it's actually whoever davens the slowest is the winner, right? <laughs> because it means that you're actually uh, having a little bit of kavana. And hopefully you're understanding the meaning of the words that you're saying, and you actually really do believe that you're speaking with the sugar daddy in the sky, right? The one who can do it all for you and who's actually listening more closely than maybe even your best friend. I'm not saying that's easy to picture that. It's, not, it's an avoda that we have to work on. Dalif Nemiya Taomei, know who you are standing in front of. 
but this is the idea. Okay, so what I want to do now is to start getting into the Shemona Asrei, and before we can even get into it, we have to look at the psukim, the words that come before Shemona Asrei, because the Gemara tells us that halachically, according to Jewish law, there is to be no pause between the prayers before Shemona Esrei and the beginning of Shemona Esrei. That we have to connect the prayer before, which is all about Geula. Sorry, let me just find my notes. Which is all about redemption from Egypt to the Shemona Esrei. So we're not allowed to interrupt between the prayers for Shemona Esrei and as we go into Shemona Esrei. So what are we talking about in the prayer before Shemona Esrei? Um, if you, if, for those of you who have a sitter, I had the page, what happened? You will see that basically all the prayers before the Shemona Esrei are speaking about our redemption from Egypt, right? You redeemed us, Hashem, our God, from Egypt and from the house of slavery. You liberated us. All their firstborn you slew, but your firstborn you redeemed. You split the sea. You drowned the sinners. You brought your dear ones across. The water covered their foes. Not one of them was left. And for this, we praise you and we offer hymns and songs and praises. And then the last thing we say is, um, you know, we talk about um, you humble the haughty, you lift the lowly, you withdraw the captive, you liberate the humble, you help the poor, you respond to your people when they cry out to you. Now, some people take their three steps back here. Okay, there's two different places where you can begin to take your three steps back. If you look in your art school sitter, it will say that. That people rise here at this point after Shabame love, and they begin to take their three steps back, but others wait till the next paragraph after Tsur Yisrael, just before um, beginning the Shemona Esri. Okay? And um, I mean, both are fine depending on your minhag. Maybe some of you have a minhag, a custom that you do. But the point is, is that before we begin Shimon Esrei, we are talking about how God, one of the great things that the Jewish people say over and over again, and the reason why we mention Mitzrayim so often in our Torah, is because the big Hiddish, the big revelation that the Jewish people brought into this world, is not that God is just the God of creation, that he created the world which of course our Torah begins with, but rather that God is the God of history. He gets involved in the details of history, not only the history of nations, but every single human individual person's life. He's not the God, as my Robinson used to say, who created the world and then went on vacation to Florida, you know? And he just pressed a few buttons and everything's operating by itself. You know, every morning the sun rises, every night the moon comes out. No, he is um, constantly involved in his creation, not only in running it. He's not just the creator, 
He's not just the sustainer, but he's also the supervisor. Okay? That's the definition of God. One of the definitions, creator, sustainer, and supervisor. And this is one of the great chidushim, if you like, insights that the Jewish people brought into the world. And that's why we repeat so often, even with the first commandment, I am Hashem, your God, who took you out of the land of Egypt. Right? Because we see God as the God of redemption, the God of saving, the God who swoops in and gets involved. And so this is why we connect this to the Shemona Esrei. Because in the same way we're saying to Hashem, you took us collectively and you redeemed us from Egypt. So too now when we're beginning the Shemona Esrei, you should be personally involved in my own redemption. And this is what Shimona Esrei is addressing our redemption, our personal redemption on every level, whether it's material, physical, um, spiritual, emotional. Hashem, we need your help. We need you to the Gemara says one who connects these two parts of the prayer, the Geula of Egypt to the Shimona Esrei not only receives olam haba, but it says has a taste of olam haba in this world, whatever that means. And the Talmud Yerushalmi says, one who does not connect them is like a friend of a king who knocks on the king's door and then leaves. When the king answers, he's not there. So the king also leaves. So this really makes it very clear that we have to be very careful not to interrupt between the prayers that come before the Shemona Esrei and the prayer that comes right after. So the idea of redemption is, Geula is the idea of, it's the greatest example of Hashem coming close to us. You know, in the Haggadah, we say, Ani velo malach, ani velo saraf. Ani Hashem, ani velo acher. I didn't send a messenger. I didn't send an angel to take you out of Egypt. And in the Shemona Esrei prayer, it's not an angel. It's not a messenger. It's me. Ani Hashem, ani velo acher. Who wants to redeem you, who wants to be part of your life and take you out from whatever... Saurus, you're going through or give you whatever it is that you need. And so it's as if we're offering ourselves up to Hashem as a korban, because we know that the prayers replaced the korbanot, right? And it's symbolized by us standing with our feet together. Like we're tied up, like Yitzchak was in this last week's Parsha. We're tying our body up. We're standing with our feet together and our arms at our side. I think it was Rav Moshe Feinstein who said he was once in a Russian concentration camp or some kind of terrible place or prison. And he stood at attention. And from that time forth, that's how he stood during Shemona Esrei, because the awe and the fear that encompassed him, having that officer who was determining life and death, 
that he didn't shuckle while he dove in Shemona Esrei. He offered himself up to Hashem with that same kind of awe and fear and stood at attention during Shemona Esrei, or like as a korban who's bound and tied with total surrender. The other idea, again, of standing with two feet together, and we'll talk about this when we get to the Kedusha, is the idea of, of having one purpose, that my entire body and soul are directed towards Hashem, because angels only have one foot. In other words, angels don't have free choice. They do what God tells them to do. The greatness of human beings, as, as we said in other classes, is that we do have free choice. That's what makes us greater than all other creations. We have two feet. We can decide to go right. We can decide to go left. We can decide to do right. We can decide to do wrong. When we stand with our feet together, we're saying, Hashem, we want to be like the angels with only one purpose, with only one foot. That can only do the will of Hashem. That understands how ridiculous it is to want to do anything else. Right? As it says in the Talmud, a person only sins when a ruach shtus comes upon them, when a spirit of insanity, meaning delusion and illusion. But of course, human beings go there because it's very difficult to be an angel all the time. One more idea. So we speak about the, the redemption before we come into the Shemona Esrei because we are expressing the idea that when we were in Egypt, our speech was in exile. Our power of speech, the ability to communicate with God was exiled. We know that the Jewish people were idol worshipers in Egypt. We were Ovdei Avodah just like the Egyptians. We know that when the Jewish people were being saved, as we crossed the Yamsuk, the angels came and protested. They said, what are you doing, Hashem? Elu ve'elu. They're both, they're both idol worshippers. Why are you saving them and, and, and drowning the Egyptians? So the idea was is that the Jewish people's speech was in exile. We were not able to dove into Hashem. The word paro, if you rearrange the letters, spells pa-ra, an evil mouth. Because the whole licentiousness and decadence of Egypt never included any kind of spiritual type of talk or discussion. It was all based in idol worship, you know, worshiping idols to get what you want or believing that you could manipulate these gods in the way that you wanted. Everything was self-serving. and. Pesach, when we came out of Egypt and we celebrated our first Pesach, Pesicha, the mouth speaks, right? That's why we say on Pesach, the more one speaks about the exodus from Egypt, the more is he to be praised, right? It's a, it's a, it's a holiday of talking, talk, 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 as much as you can, right? Every word is a mitzvah because it's the idea that when we came out of Egypt, we regained our speech, we regained that which makes us unique among the creation, which is that we are a ruach namalale. We are a breathing, speaking spirit. God himself blew into us and made us a medaber. Human beings have the ability to have articulate and high thoughts 
and be able to articulate them through speech, which is another reason why we, when we daven, we use our speech. We use that which makes us human and above all other creations. And when we begin to daven Shimon Esrei after speaking about how our mouth was in exile, we're now using the greatest power that Jewish people have, right? Hakol kol Yaakov, the Hayadayim Yadei Esav. The power of the Jewish people is in their mouth. It is our sword. It is our most powerful way of creating a reality. God used words to create the world. He didn't have to. He could have just thought about what he wants, and it could have happened. But he created the world through speech to let us know that our words create reality. Our words create worlds. We know a positive word can take another person and bring them up to incredible joy and happiness. And the negative word can do the same. We create realities. When we, the way we speak, you know, part of my goal for our learning Shemona Esri together is to recognize how important, how much we don't appreciate speech, the power of speech, right? The Gemara says that every person only has a certain number of words that they will say in their lifetime, that we have a limited amount of words. You know, people who at the end of their life can't speak. That's what I think about sometimes. You know, like my Bubby lived to be 101, Kanainahar, but the last few months of her life, she didn't speak. So it's almost like that's it. You know, we have a certain number of words and that's why words are so important. Words create reality. So the more we purify our speech in our everyday talk, the more our words when we pray will be received by God. Because the more pure they are, obviously, the more potent our prayers are. Okay. Laura, yes. Laura I have a question. Can you yes. clarify why... When you're praying, you 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 pray out loud as opposed to um, sort of reading to yourself. Yeah, so that's the point. Is first of all, when you pray out loud, you are it, it goes deeper. The, the the words go deeper when you're also using your other senses. When you're hearing what you say, very good question for him. And also, you are expressing your human kind, again, through articulate speech, not just thinking the words, but actually using your mouth and saying the words, again, like God did, let us make light, and there was light, right? The words were spoken, right? Let there be light. So that is part of it. When we hear what we're saying, too, it goes deeper inside of us. Okay, I want to speak about, before we get into the Shimon Esri, why do we take three steps backwards and then three steps forwards? So first of all, just in terms of the mechanics, you always take your three steps backwards with your, um, your, your um, weaker side. In other words, if you're left-handed and it's your right foot that's your weaker side, you begin taking the step backwards with your right foot. And the opposite is true. If you're right-handed, you take your first step back using your left foot. Okay? And the idea is, is that you're moving away from God. 
so to speak, when you're going back. So you want to show that it's not something that you want to do. So you do it with the weaker foot. And of course, as you're coming back to God with the three steps forward, you're using your stronger foot to metaphorically symbolize that, you know, you want to come towards God with all of your strength, with all of you. And so that's one reason just technically that we go backwards three and come forward three. Now, I'm sure there are many, many, many reasons for it, but I'm going to tell you one more that's from the Baal Shem Tov. The great Hasidic master, the, the rabbi who began the Hasidic movement, he explains it with a parable. He says that when a parent is teaching a child to walk, what does a parent do? The parent moves back. He takes some steps away from the child, and then he does it in order to say, come on, come on, walk towards me, come closer. You can do it. So he says that similarly, sometimes God seems to withdraw. But he does this only in order for us to intensify our search for him. Sometimes he appears to be far from us. But like the parent who's urging the child to walk towards him, it's only because Hashem wants us to take more steps towards him. His steps back, as it were, are so we can take steps to follow him. So we symbolically reenact this concept before the beginning of Shimona Esrei, as if to say, we're not discouraged by his three steps backward because we realize it's for the purpose of us drawing closer to him. It reminds me of that story that's been told in the name of so many different rabbis. I'm not sure which one it is, but we'll say the Lubavitcher Rebbe, that when he was a child, he was playing hide-and-go-seek with his friends. And, you know, he went and hid, and his friends were looking for him, and they couldn't find him anywhere. And, the, the, you know, it was getting dark. I think they made this into a Franklin book, too. I don't know. Not, not with the same ending. But, you know, it was getting dark, and his friends gave up looking for him, and they all went home. And, of course, this little boy who later became a great rabbi, you know, was very, very sad when he realized that nobody was coming to find him. And he came home in tears and his mother asked him what happened. And he said, you know, I was hiding and I had such a good hiding spot and I was hiding and hiding. And I was there for hours, it seemed. And I realized that my friends had all gone home and they'd all given up looking for me. And he said, you know, I think I know how Hashem feels now. Because that's what Hashem does. He hides, but he wants us to find him. And so many just give up the search. I've said this before in other classes, that it's not a coincidence that the word olam, world, is the same root as the word he'elam, which means to hide. That God created a physical world and then hid himself behind it. And he says, come and find me. Lift up the veils. No pun intended. Lift up the veil 
and come and find me because I'm here. And every so often he says peekaboo, right? We have a coincidence in our life. Peekaboo, we have something that makes us call out in pain. Hashem, help me. But the idea is, is that we want to search for him when things are good. We want to develop that relationship and that connection with all the blessings that we have in our life. Not wait until, God forbid, we're spurred to look for him because we don't, we don't, we don't know where to go. We don't know what to do because we're desperate. No, God doesn't just want a relationship with us when we're desperate, when we need the car keys, right? When you got to save me, God, because I'm sick as a dog. God wants us to have that relationship with him when things are going well, when he's throwing money down instead of furniture, if you remember that, Michelle, to get our attention from a high-rise building in Manhattan. You know, somebody was locked out of the building trying to get attention from the people below. If you remember that parable, right? He throws down money and nobody looks up. But when he starts throwing down the old office furniture at the top of the building to get people's attention down below on that busy Manhattan street, all of a sudden everybody starts looking up and saying, oh, wow, what's going on here? We don't want to do that. We want to... Pay attention when things are good. Okay, where are we up to? My goodness, I think we're at the end. Okay, we've only got a few minutes left. Um, I think we're going to end here, and next week we're going to start. Although, you know what? Let's do one more thing. Is is everybody still with me? You want to do one more thing? So why don't we do the very first uh, beginning of Shimona Esrei, the very first in small letters, it says, Hashem sefasai tiftach ufi yagi tihilasecha. Or if you don't like my Ashkenazi accent, Hashem sefatai tiftach ufi yagi tihilatecha. That um, before we even begin to pray, we ask Hashem to help us pray. Because prayer is not an easy thing. Prayer is a skill. Prayer takes a lot of work, just like Amuna and Bitachon, just like all of the spiritual disciplines. It is the work, you know, it is work. It is a path. It is a, a, an avoda. That's why uh, prayer is called avoda, right? Avoda, avoda. It's work. It's hard work. It's avodat shebaleid. It's work of the heart, but it requires effort. And so before we even begin to pray, the first thing we do is ask Hashem to help us pray. Open up my lips so that I can sing your praises, because obviously it's impossible for a human being with a limited brain to comprehend God, to be able to praise that which he could never, ever, ever understand or know. But in our tiny little puny way, we're asking God to please unlock our soul that is confined by our body. Let our soul overflow. By the way, the word sfasai, your lips, is the same word in Hebrew as sfat hanahar, the banks of the river. Your lips are like the, the banks of the river, and your tongue, your speech is like the river. So before we even begin, we say, God, open up my lips. Open up the banks of the river. Open up that 
which confines me, that physical, material part of me that constrains and restricts me and allow my soul to overflow the banks the way the water overflows the banks of the river. When it's gushing, when it's full. That Pasuk, by the way, Hashem Sifatai Tiftah Ufiyah comes from Psalm 51. It comes from King David, David HaMelech. And the reason that we say it before beginning Shemona Esrei, again, is also, it's a message for us. David HaMelech said this Pasuk after sinning with Bathsheba. Okay? And he was asking Tshuva. He was coming back to Hashem in Tshuva for his error. And so the Shemona Esri begins with this Pasuk to let us know that no one, David HaMelech is our example, but that no one is ever too distant or could ever do anything too rotten or awful or bad that will ever prevent him from coming back to God in sincere prayer. And we know there are stories and stories in the Gemara and the Talmud about the biggest Rashaim, the greatest wicked, evil people, who Hashem waits and waits and waits for them to return to him, waits for them to do tshuva, many of whom became some of our greatest rabbis, right? Reish Lakish, Rabbi Akiva even, it says about him that he hated the Talmidei Chachamim. Every time he'd see a Torah scholar, he wanted to bite him, the Gemara says. So the idea again is that when we come before Hashem to begin the Shemona Esri, David HaMelech is our model, who comes right at the moment after sinning with Bathsheba and says, Hashem, open up my lips to you. Please allow me to come to you, to speak to you, even in my embarrassment and shame, because I know, Tati and Himmel, that you always will take me back. Just like every loving parent, it doesn't matter how many times our kids let us down, how many times we want to give up on them, in a moment, if they come to the door and say, Mama, I'm home, I need you, I want you, please help me, who is the parent who would, wouldn't open that door? And so this is our model for beginning Shemona Esrei. And it's also an acknowledgement, again, about the fact that we have this gift of speech. And who do we learn about this gift of speech, how miraculous it is? We learn about it from none other than Bilam Harasha, right? Bilam, who was the prophet of the non-Jewish world. Because in that story, what God is telling us is that your ability to speak is no less miraculous than a donkey speaking. Don't think that it's Teva, right? What is a miracle? There's two types of miracles. There's miracles that go against Teva, that God disrupts nature. And then there's constant miracles that we take for granted because we expect, well, this is the way it's supposed to be. Babies are supposed to be born in this incredibly remarkable way. People are supposed to be able to speak. But before we even begin the Shemona Esri, we recognize 
the incredible and miraculous gift of speech that we were given as human beings, which is no more miraculous, right? With, if a donkey would talk, we'd say, whoa. You know, when the donkey talks in Shrek, we go, wow, or whatever. Or we just, you know, but the point is, is that it's no more miraculous that we speak and that we communicate through articulate speech. So we're acknowledging this before we even begin the Shemona Asrei, that we are Medabir, that we are at the top of the totem pole of God's creation because of this ability to speak. And God allows us to use it to speak to him. And that's what we're going to talk about next week. What an incredible thing this is. So thank you so much for joining me. And again, Renee, your mom's beautiful. Neshama should have an aliyah. And Yaakov Tzvi Ben, I'm not sure what his father's name was. I was davening for him. Ben Liba. And of course, Rev. David Feinstein, they should be Melitz uh, Yosher for the Jewish people, all of them, and bring us to the Geula and bring more light into the world so that people can find their way in this incredible darkness. And um, Hashem should bless them and their Neshama should have an Aliyah. And God willing, everybody should have a Shavua Tov, a good week. And Mirza Hashem, I will see you again, God willing, on Wednesday morning. And just so you know, um, everything's recorded. It's going to be on my podcast. Again, my podcast is on any of the podcast stations, you know, Spotify, Podbean. I don't know. I don't know the names of these things. Skitter. I don't know. But you'll see there's Accessing Your Best Self, and there's the Bitachon class on there now, and the recordings of this class will be there so if you want to, and I should stop recording.